0: Although self-cutting is most certainly not the only form of self-injury, it is the most common form. But does it matter where on the body someone cuts, whether on typically more visible sites such as the forearm and wrist, or in typically more concealed areas such as the upper arm and torso, is there a relationship between where someone cuts on their body and their likelihood of continuing to engage in the behavior? What are some clinical and psychological characteristics among those who self-cut in places that are often visible? compared to those who do so in places that are concealed and not often visible? In other words, what is the psychology of self-injury location and where on the body one chooses to self-injure? To answer these questions and to talk about the social and emotional functions of non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, I am joined today from Northwest England in the UK by Dr. Katherine Gardner. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or I-S-S-S, or simply i Dr. Katherine Gardner is a senior lecturer in psychology at the University of Central Lancashire, course director for the Applied Psychology Program, and joint course director for the Associate Psychology Practitioner Program. She is well published in the fields of emotional intelligence, borderline personality disorder, self-injury, and other areas of mental health. In 2017, she co-founded Suicide and Self-Harm Research Northwest, or SHARE Now, a collaboration between several universities in Northwest England, which aims to bring together a wide range of stakeholders with a shared interest in suicide and self-harm research from across the Northwest of England, raising awareness of suicide and self-harm research that is high quality, as well as initiatives in the local area. Welcome, Dr. Gardner. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: How did you first become interested in researching self-injury?
1: Yes, um, good question. Um, a long, well, slightly long journey, if that makes sense. So I, I began my PhD research in emotional intelligence. I was really interested at the time in how emotional intelligence applied to mental health. And emotional intelligence as a psychological construct was relatively in its infancy at that stage. Quite a bit of research, but, but nowhere near as much as there is today. And. When I was reading around the area, one of the things that I was trying to do at the time was to bring in published research from other areas. And um, Some of the, those areas were developmental psychology and other areas uh, were re- was research in the field of clinical psychology. One of the papers I came across at the time was a paper that looked at emotion perception recognition in borderline personality disorder. And I thought this was quite interesting because when I started to look at the parallels between emotion perception, so this is the idea that you can identify facial expressions of emotion on somebody else's face. And I started to look at how this overlaps with emotional intelligence, which is somewhat broader. So emotional intelligence contains or includes this ability to identify facial expressions of emotion, but it goes beyond that to emotional understanding, using emotions and and managing emotions as well. And I was really interested when I found this paper on BPD for that reason, really, because it overlaps with emotional intelligence and I also had never heard of borderline personality disorder at the time given how much I thought I knew about mental health this was a bit of a revelation I thought why have I never heard about this and why have I not had any teaching on this you know where does this come from so that was the focus of my PhD research in the end emotional intelligence and borderline personality disorder albeit traits of the disorder in a, a community population. As you'll know, as many of our listeners will know, often people with borderline personality disorder can cope through using um, techniques or methods such as self-injury. So that's how I've sort of transitioned into the self-injury field, really, partly through trying to understand it in the context of borderline personality disorder, but also really interested to understand it outside of that context as well and just, you know, as a behaviour that can be separate and not necessarily entwined within personality disorder symptoms.
0: So you got interested based on other research and realizing that you didn't know a whole lot about borderline personality disorder and uh, many individuals with borderline personality disorder, or as you referenced, BPD, self-injure. And so that's kind of how you got into researching this area.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Thinking about where people self-injure on their bodies, Mm they can be meaningful, I know, for some people. And then some people, they may do it in places that are visible to others and others that are not visible, that they're concealed before we dive into that, what is the most common method of self-injury and where on the body do most people self-injure?
1: Yeah, really, really big questions. And actually, I think for many years now, the focus on trying to understand self-injury in the sort of clinical sense, those defining characteristics, as you mentioned, such as method, and the focus has been very much on things like method alongside severity of the injury or frequency of the injury. But yeah, location I think is another characteristic we can also think about. In answer to your question, when we look at methods, it's very common for people, whether they're members of the community or whether they're in a patient population, very common to be self-injuring by cutting. And as you would expect, we find variation across studies depending on how self-injury has been measured depending on the sample type. But really, we probably find that around 70% of individuals self-harming or self-injuring through cutting. When it comes to location, as I mentioned, I think this is almost a, well, a poorly understood characteristic or potentially important clinical feature of of self-injury that we see a little bit written about in studies, but it's really just a cursory glance, and it's not really become an an important focus until, until this point, until some of my own research so we were really interested in trying to understand that further which as you say we'll, we'll come on to that in a moment but in answer to your second question what's the most common location i think that most people listening to this podcast will probably say that the most common location that people self-injure is the wrist and that fits with you know the sort of lay perception i think of what self-injury is and how it manifests it also does fit with the research that's what we find in in westernized and non-westernized countries that self-injury to the wrist the forearm and the arm but also the leg are sort of secondary commonplace as well and i think just to give you some percentages when we looked at this in a hospital presenting sample we found that 54 percent of individuals and this was self-cutting only that's probably an important point to make really cutting not other methods but we found 54 percent of self-injuries were on the wrist and forearm the upper arm, so if we take the arm as a whole, then we've got a large proportion of injuries on the arm, and around 7% were on the leg, and then just small percentages on the the head, neck, and torso. So, So collectively, a wide range of places, but certainly some common areas and some less common areas, and that really begs the question of why. Why those areas and why not others?
0: What are some of the possible explanations that can help us understand why people might injure themselves in different locations?
1: Yeah, it's a million dollar question. And this this is the question I'm really trying to answer. And we've had to do quite a bit of digging to try and pull together some academic, you know, papers on this. So we're not just plucking ideas out of thin air, but what we're doing is taking bits of information, so narratives, literature, where it's perhaps not empirical studies, but theoretical discussion papers in, you know, the psychodynamic field, or we've pulled out empirical studies that have, as you said, said before, made quite a cursory glance to Location, So there's bits of data in there where um, it tells us something about the possible explanations, but not a lot. So I'll go through a few different theories based on our kind of pulling together of the literature. I think the first one of these probably fits with, again, what I expect, or what we hear is often the lay perception of, I am generalising here and and I realise I'm making sort of massive assumptions. These are quite sweeping statements at times, but If you ask most people questions about self-injury, you do get, as we know, quite a lot of stigma still, quite a lot of stereotypes. And some of the stereotypes we hear still are, oh, that person's self-harmed in a visible location. They must have been trying to seek attention. They must have been trying to seek care um, or support. So, you know, quite derogatory terms sometimes, this notion of attention-seeking. But actually, there might be something in that. So if somebody is self-harming in a visible or self-injuring in a visible location, Does it have functional value? Is it the case that by self-injuring in a visible location that does help that person meet that need? Now, the answer to that is possibly. But certainly I'm not sitting here saying that everybody who injures in a visible location will be self-harming to meet that need. There are many other reasons. And, you know, having lots of conversations with people who self-injure, I hear things along the lines of, well, I didn't really give it any thought as to whether it was in a visible location. It was quite an impulsive moment um, I was focused on relieving distress or something else and if it's seen by others that doesn't bother me so I think this highlights the you know the potential variation for one person there could be functional value so when I talk about functional value this idea of functions meaning reasons for self-injury and likewise what we might therefore assume is that self-injury in concealed locations doesn't serve that social functional purpose so it's not about communicating the need for care or support it's something else because it's very secret private secretive behavior now the functional perspective which we talk about one of our book chapters is is only one perspective and and as i said these are all kind of assumptions at the moment what we've not got is the data that really maps on this these functions or reasons for self-injury to location so we've tried to think about other perspectives as well and one of the things we considered was a more cognitive explanation So this idea that the way people think about self-harm that might drive specific locations and that they decide to self-injure i'll just give you an example there might be an expectation a cognitive expectation a belief that if i self-injure my wrist i will feel more calm or if i self-injure my face it will shock people and they will leave me alone so these expectations we know generally speaking from the literature expectations about self-injury drive the behavior we are wondering whether that also applies to these expectations around injuring in specific locations, if that makes sense. And then a final perspective we touched on, and this isn't the third and final only perspective. We we only covered a few in the, in the chapter, really, just to scratch the surface. But we also considered a psychodynamic approach, this idea that, as we know, much of what we do as human beings is not always in our conscious awareness. So I think to assume that when people self-injure, they make a very conscious, deliberate choice about the location on the body that they choose to self-injure I think that would be wrong to assume that and you know it's often the case that people can explain bits about the self injury but that those deeper cognitive processes those reasons that really drive the behavior can be quite difficult for people to understand and articulate sometimes but not all the time some people you know have very good understanding and can articulate that but one of the things we thought about, just as an example in the psychodynamic perspective, is um, the role of dissociation. So we know that some people dissociate. So that's this idea that you might sort of detach from reality, from your thoughts, your own feelings. And if you dissociate before you self-injure, there's probably really not much of a conscious thought process as to where you injure on the body, which you know could have all, all sorts of implications with regards to clinical risk, which I suppose we'll come on to later. But if somebody dissociates after the self-injury, then perhaps at the time they did think about where they'd injured it. Or if they did, it it might have been on a very sort of surface level, a quick thought as to, I'll self-injure my leg. That's where I usually self-injure. Nobody will know I've done it. So I don't need to then talk about it with anyone else. And it can be something that I keep to myself. So I I hope that sort of explains and some of the ideas we've got, um, certainly more than that.
0: That's a great breakdown. I like that you brought it back to the functional approach, and I know we're going to get to that later in this interview. The fact that 2% of people may cut, specifically if we're talking about self-cutting, they may cut their face or their head as a form of Mm self-injury is really interesting because I know in episode 12, we interviewed Dr. Barry Walsh on atypical severe self-injury where he classifies self-injuring on the face, whether it's cutting or some other form. Is more atypical and here we are saying only two percent of these episodes occur on the head and that's the part of our bodies a part of our beings the presentation of one's face that we project to the world Mm. if they damage their face that serves a function like you had mentioned potentially of leave me alone or something more important yeah
1: that's an interesting one and it's certainly something that's come out in another study we've not published it yet but a study with professionals who support those who self injure and, and one of the things i think one of the quotes and comments was if somebody is self-injuring their face, then um, there must be something quite seriously wrong. Otherwise, why would they do that? You know, why would um, they disfigure their face in a way that everybody can see? So I think from the perspective of people who don't self-injure, it's very difficult to understand. And there's this assumption that it is perhaps underpinned by greater distress um, or something else. Yeah, again, the data the data's not there. I think there are some studies we know of psychosis where it's more common. Many of these are just case examples, actually, that are published in the literature. They're not rigorous studies, but we certainly know there are some studies where psychosis is associated with self-injury to the face. But that will not be the only, I think, underpinning or associated factor, I think. I think we have a lot to understand about that, if I'm honest.
0: Yeah, to think about how much distress someone must be in to self-injure the face or their head is pretty heartbreaking if we think about Mm. it. Yeah, yeah. You had mentioned earlier about 70% of self-injury episodes overall are done by cutting. So it's the most common form. In general, of course, studies vary, but you look specifically at self-cutting in a lot of your research. Why does it matter where on the body someone chooses to cut themselves or does it matter?
1: Yes, again, another good question. And I think the last part is is really important. The, The does it matter is the question we're trying to answer and we've thought about this quite a lot and, and I'm sure our thinking will evolve as we delve more into the area. But again, I'm a bit like with the theories, I'll try and break it down into some of the areas we've focused on. So my hunch is that it does matter or it can matter. And one of the things we thought about was the detection of self-injury. I think to put it simply, if, if self-injury is visible, then it's easiest to detect. If self-injury isn't visible, then we're relying on um, educational professionals, for example. There's quite a lot of pressure placed on teachers to identify in schools whether young people are self-injuring. If it's spotted, that's picked up quickly. If it's not spotted, then how do we detect it? What are the other signs we need to look for? And and I think that ties into, um, into teacher training. But yeah, that's just one example in educational settings. It applies across the board really in clinical settings as well. So I really think that, you know, the location can help with that initial detection of self-injury. The other thing we thought about was when working clinically with people and this idea that at the heart of any good clinical assessment and formulation of the client's difficulties are the details really, trying to drill down into all the specifics. So when we're thinking about, and trying to understand self-injury it's important to understand how it presents whether that's in terms of how frequent the person's self-injuring how severe it is but also if you think about location i think a client who starts out by injuring one place and then transitions to injuring multiple locations it's something that i think could be talked about during therapy Opening up the conversation and inquiring with what we call respectful curiosity is a term we've seen in the literature trying to really inquire you know what potentially has changed for that client is it that you know the relief wasn't the same anymore after injuring that location for quite some time so other locations are now chosen or was it something else so i really think that trying to understand those any shift in location and what that potentially might mean for some someone or if it even does mean anything for them is quite important and i think also clinical risk as well so We think about some areas being more clinically risky than others. And some clients, some individuals will be aware of that. Some people might not be, especially I think when people are young and they first begin to self-injure, not really understanding the risks associated with injuring in specific areas. So thinking about that education and helping them understand that I think is quite important. And I think the final thing we thought about was when working therapeutically with those who self-injure, I suppose tying into everything else I've just talked about really, but raising their awareness of the import, potential importance of location could just help them understand their self-injury more. If we think about scars as well, we were thinking about you perhaps this idea of using compassion-focused techniques in therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy. And this came about really when we started to think about how for some people, perhaps scars in certain areas might be more difficult for them to accept and move on from than others, and we see that in the literature on scars, not just scars from self-injury, but scars in relation to to other injuries as well. So I think there's a lot to think about in terms of why it could be important.
0: I do hope to do an episode on the meaning of scarring at some point, and there's very different types of relationships people might have with their scars, whether they're self-inflicted or scars based on some other reason. You had mentioned changing locations of self-injury, and I wasn't planning to ask this question till later, but since you mentioned it, do people who self-cut in locations on their body that are visible to others switch to cutting places that others can't see and vice versa?
1: Yeah, so we looked at this in the study I mentioned earlier, and, and this study was a study of young people, young adults, where I think it was fifth, age 15 to 24, and we were looking at self-cutting and those who present presented to hospital. So in terms of the data, what we really tr- wanted to try and look at is whether you can capture that switch. So it's, it's quite a difficult thing to capture over time and especially if people have got what we call multiple episodes of self-injury in the database. But what we tried to do is to keep it relatively simple and look at what's called their first index episode of self-injury. So this is the first episode of self-injury in the in the database. So when they first presented to hospital and then we looked at their subsequent episodes. So we tried to capture whether they had switched. And what we found was that if we look at those who first present with a visible self-injury, 56% of these episodes of self-harm stay in visible areas. So there's no switch, but 44% at the next episode had switched to a concealed location. And then if we look at those who first present with a concealed location, we found 61% didn't switch, but 39% switched to a visible area. So just to summarise that, what we find really is that switching from a concealed to a visible area is is probably less common, whereas switching from visible to concealed is is more common. Again, we started to sort of think about reasons for that, really. We really are speculating based on this data, because what we've not been able to capture are are those reasons, and we didn't have any psychological measures to try and um, assess those. It's really just a case of looking at the data and looking at patterns. So I think there's definitely a piece of work we need to do in the future to try and map all of this on. And... To speak to people and say, well, look, you've told us that you've, you've moved, um, changed locations. What does that mean for you? Does it mean anything for you? Can you tell us? Can you explain? Can you help us try and understand?
0: Building on that, the name of this podcast is obviously the psychology of self-injury. And obviously, we can't neatly categorize people into boxes here, specific categories such as those who self-injure in concealed locations and those who self-injure in visible locations because you're saying there's a switch and there's oftentimes in both areas. So it's not that neat categorization that we would be helpful to have in understanding. But what are some clinical and psychological characteristics among individuals who self-cut in places that are visible compared to those who self-cut in places that are concealed and not visible
1: Mm. Yes, yeah, so it's a good point. We we can't put people neatly into boxes because of that whole notion of potential switching. That's not to say everybody will. Some people might always self-injure in concealed locations. But what we're trying to do with this data is rather than, for, for that reason, rather than grouping people into those boxes of this person self-injures in concealed, this person self-injures in visible areas, we, we looked at episodes of, of self-injury. So it's the episodes that are categorised. And when you look at episodes of self-injury that are concealed versus episodes of self-injury that are visible, what we find is that concealed self-cutting is more likely to be characterised by factors that represent elevated clinical risk. So we find concealed cuttings associated with repetition of self-injury, greater premeditation and planning, whether someone's currently receiving psychiatric care and also a history of self-injury. Now, these are just a small number of variables from a a large number that we looked at. And as with all psychology studies, you know, what we really need to do is replicate the findings and have some additional robust measures in there, More, more detailed measures than we had for this study, because it was really an epidemiological data set with relatively brief assessments of some of these things rather than long, you know, the gold standard psychological sort of assessment tools that we use. I think the other thing that we found was that, Whilst concealed cutting was associated with things that told us this was perhaps more clinically risky, the interesting thing that we found was that when we looked at referrals made by clinicians, concealed cutting was less likely to lead to a full assessment or psychiatric aftercare. So this was really interesting and we thought, right, so what, what does that tell us? We've got people making clinical decisions and there's some association with the location of injury. Is it that there are some, some assumptions being made based on the injury that have perhaps informed that clinical decision-making? The answer to that, we don't know. We, we didn't capture that data. Some of the findings that we had in this paper were wiped out as well when we controlled for other things, which means they're perhaps not um, robust findings. So again, what we really need to do is replicate some of this data and see see what comes out.
0: I know some clinicians feel it's their responsibility to actually assess the severity of the wound, which Mm. is a little bit of a gray area because if you're assessing, say, the wrist and the severity of a cut there, then that means you would probably assess for a cut on someone's leg, torso, or even chest or thigh, and those would be inappropriate. So I, I wonder if that might account for some of the referral for psychiatric assessment or evaluation because someone might be doing an evaluation yeah. of the visible marks and just not assess the mm-hmm. concealed ones.
1: Yeah, possibly. And I think, you know, these, that's a good point. And these are all things that we need to look into. There's certainly some suggesting that there's perhaps, you know, some overlap with the variables. So it might be that there's other variables that have actually influenced that referral or not for an assessment. I mean, location seems to be part of that, but is it really location that's driving it? It could be other things.
0: But yeah, that is so interesting that people that self-injure and conceal are less likely to be referred for treatment.
1: Mm. In the UK, the NICE clinical guidelines stipulate that all individuals who present to hospital have to receive what's called a full psychosocial assessment. And that's irrespective of things like location and severity of the injury. It should be accessible to all. Now, in reality, we know that that doesn't always happen, but there are wide-ranging Sort of systemic and practical and clinical factors that can contribute to whether someone does receive that assessment or not you know whether location's part of that i, I don't know perhaps not um, but there are certainly other factors that contribute to it
0: we know that non-suicidal self-injury including self-cutting even though it's non-suicidal is a significant risk factor for later attempting suicide what is the relationship between where on the body someone self-cuts whether visible or concealed and thinking about suicide or even attempting suicide?
1: One of the other papers that we, one of the papers that I conducted was around, uh, that addressed this very question. So we took a longitudinal approach where we had a data set that tracked people over time from adolescence to adulthood. And, and, And this is just great because it really allows us to answer those questions of if something happens at this time point, does it predict what happens in the future? And one of the things that we were interested in understanding was whether the functions of self-injury so the reasons for self-injury during adolescence can increase the risk of suicide attempts during adulthood. When we looked at this what we did was we conceptualized functions into the two broad categories that you tend to find in the literature so this is uh, this idea that you can have interpersonal or social functions such as seeking support compared to intrapersonal functions such as managing one's emotions and stress and anger. And what we found was that intrapersonal functions, so those emotion-related reasons, um, at age 16 predicted or increased the risk of, first of all, future repetition of self-injury. So there was a maintenance effect, those intrapersonal functions are maintaining self-injury. And we also found to some extent that those intrapersonal functions predicted future suicide attempts. I, I say to some extent because, again, the finding wasn't particularly that robust in this study, and it means replicating, so it was a bit of a caveat there. But what was interesting is that we didn't find any relationship at all between interpersonal, those social functions um, of self-injury, and either repetition or suicide attempts. So we concluded really from this study that intrapersonal functions seem to be maintaining that self-injury over time and possibly elevate the risk of suicide attempts, but interpersonal functions don't. And I think this really helps us position self-injury in that affect regulatory framework. So this idea that self-injury is very much, or can be very much about managing one's um, emotions and and distress.
0: And I know a lot of people who start self-injuring maybe for interpersonal reasons, social reasons, they may continue on, not necessarily for those reasons, but for emotional, intrapersonal reasons. And it sounds like they may be at greater risk later on for suicidal thoughts and behaviors.
1: Similar to the location-based studies, we looked in this paper as well at this idea of switching. So The location-based paper was about locations switching, but with this one, we, you know, totally separate from functions, we were interested in whether functions sort of switch and change over time. And a few interesting findings there, really. When it comes to switching functions from adolescence to adulthood, the majority of people don't tend to switch function type. So if you're self-injuring for intrapersonal reasons in adolescence, you're likely to be self-injuring for intrapersonal reasons during adulthood. That wasn't always the case. And for some people, there was that switch. For example, one thing we found was that individuals who begin by reporting interpersonal only during adolescence, they move on to, in adulthood, to report just intrapersonal, just those emotion related reasons, or both types. Just to sort of break that down and summarise a bit, what we find is that in adolescence, there's this tendency to, or this finding that people, uh, young people can self-injure for interpersonal reasons only, and when the behaviour continues into adulthood, we, we don't really find those interpersonal functions alone maintaining the behaviour. When interpersonal functions are present in adulthood, they're always accompanied by intrapersonal functions. So there's always that emotion-related reason driving it. We talked a lot about this finding, what it potentially means. And if you think about what we know about adolescence, and, and this isn't to say that everybody self, begins self-injuring during adolescence, But for those who do, it's very common to hear from young people that they began self-injuring either by accident in a way, you know, just curiosity. My friend was doing it. I wanted to understand what it feels like. There's a range of different reasons, but those interpersonal reasons where my friend was doing it and I was curious because they were getting support and help from from teachers or from parents, and I wanted that as well. Those interpersonal reasons at beginning adolescence seem to initiate the behaviour, but once I think the person begins to self-injure and those emotion-related reasons take over, it's those that are maintaining the behavior into adulthood, Does that make sense. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I think that's really yeah. interesting and important to know because if they only started self-injuring for interpersonal reasons and they continue to self-injure into young adulthood – of participants in your study continue only for interpersonal reasons and social reasons. There's always that additional emotional reasons that I think is important for listeners to understand. So it's more of these emotional reasons that later predict suicidal thoughts and behaviors. What about self-injury on the body if it's visible or concealed? Is that related to suicidal thoughts or behaviors?
1: Back to the location papers. No, we didn't find there was any relationship between location of concealed and visible and self-interest thoughts or behaviours. Um, so no association there, but this isn't to say I think that location isn't important. Have to hold in mind, and I probably should have flagged this earlier actually, That with our paper, we took we took an approach where we conceptualised location into two broad categories. So these are the categories of concealed and visible, but it's not to say that we've necessarily got that right is the first thing to say. If you look at the categorization, if we decide to put risk in the visible category, it could be argued equally that that could go in the concealed category it's almost what we term in our book chapters an area of ambivalent visibility you know i found in the literature and i thought oh, that's quite fitting for some of these areas because it really helps us understand that there's perhaps an element of control if somebody injures the wrist and that other people can see it if the person wants them to it's certainly something that can be concealed but really what we've done by categorizing location into those two broad areas is come up with this almost this decision rule and this way of thinking about location on a more conceptual level, rather than just investigating whether um, there's differences in people who injure um, their face, their wrist, their leg. We've tried to think of it on a more conceptual level than that. I also think there's other ways that it could be conceptualised, and I think as the field moves forward, it might be that there's different ways of categorising locations on the body, perhaps in terms of areas of severity, for example. Um, areas of risk. We certainly know that from a follow-up study using the same data set, there was some association between self-injuring on the neck um, and risk of suicide.
0: I know even in your paper you had accounted for the possibility of wrists, forearms being concealed and reran the data, if I recall, to yeah. look at the associated clinical risks such as psychiatric distress or repetition of the self-harm and didn't find any difference if you were to look at it either way.
1: Yeah, so, um, so when we, uh, there's certain analyses you can do to test the robustness of those categories and yeah, we certainly did that. As I say, It's not to say we've got it exactly right, but if you look at the, from a data perspective and a stats analysis perspective, there was no difference to our main findings from the study when we moved things around in, in those different categories. So when we moved wrist and arm from visible to concealed or concealed to visible, it really had very little effect overall.
0: You had referenced repetition, or I had referenced it as well, of self-injury and the cutting. Is there a relationship between where someone cuts on their body and their likelihood of continuing to engage in self-cutting?
1: I think the answer to this one is that the jury's probably out. In, In our study, we found that concealed cutting was associated with a greater risk of repetition compared to cutting in a visible area. But this was over the study period, which was seven years. So there seemed to be some effect on first glance. But then when we looked at whether there was any increased risk of repetition for concealed cutting within a 12-month period, we didn't find that. So it's almost as though there was no risk in the short term, if you you classify 12 months as relatively short term, but there was any increased risk in the long term over seven years. I think, again, replicating these findings, trying to make some sense of them is is where we need to go with that one before we can really definitively say there's any increased risk based on location.
0: Well, I know you also looked at problems that precipitated the cutting episode when you looked at those who self-cut in visible locations versus those who self-cut in concealed locations. Did you find any differences?
1: Yeah, we, we did. So in terms of precipitant then, so things that might have preceded the self-injuring, and, and this was a question that those, again, that present to the emergency department are, are asked at the time. So they're given a list of different things, whether it was a traumatic experience, whether there's physical health problems or relationship problems. So a a relatively long list. And um, we found a few of these, again, seem to be associated with concealed self-injury, self-injuring concealed areas. So some of the things we found was that exposure to traumatic events, such as being a victim of crime or experiencing physical health problems or abuse, these seem to be associated with concealed cutting. But I think there's a bit of a caveat on this one because the numbers were quite small what we were really needing was people who are episodes of concealed Cutting, but enough people who've ticked each box to get reliable data, if that makes sense. So, yeah, really small numbers. So potentially something there again. But I think, you know, the jury's out until we can get um, more robust data set around that and answer that question fully
0: and i wanted to clarify too you've referenced chapter book chapter and i believe you're referencing the oxford university mm. press the handbook of non-suicidal self-injury yes yes that's
1: correct so very, very excited to um have this book chapter out partly because it's it's in the handbook and which is you know it's great to be invited to contribute but also just to get this topic out there you know and hence this interview today i was really excited when i was invited because it's you know it's just great to be able to talk about it and if it's an interesting topic, I presented on location a few weeks back at a conference, and really just trying to float the question of, you know, is does this matter? Is it important? And I, I completely appreciate there'll it. be very different perspectives, and it'll be interesting to see the reception to the to the book chapter and and see what people think. And I'm I'm open to feedback. I'd love for people to get in touch with me after reading that chapter and say, actually, I've I've thought about what you've written, and you know, I agree, or I don't agree, or I've got these ideas. You know, can we work on this together? That would be great.
0: I know that book, I think, is going to be coming out at the end of this year or early next year, so end of 2022, or probably more likely early 2023. I'm actually contributing a couple chapters to the book as well, one on media representations of self-injury and one on risk assessment, intervention, and guidance for first responders in medical settings. I'm really excited to read your chapter as well as all the other ones. That's going to be an incredible resource. Yeah, Finally, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents?
1: Mm. Yeah, um, what's probably helpful is rather than give sort of generic advice, which this question is asked at, all, at the end of all podcasts, isn't it? And I think, you know, there'll be lots of advice that's quite different, but also lots of overlap as well. So I thought what would be really useful, as you say, based on the conversation. So based on some of the things we've talked about with regards to location and the functions of self-injury, what kind of things might be useful for me to tell parents. So I'm a parent myself, and I think the first point, and this is probably the generic bit, but discovering that your child is self-injured is, can be incredibly dis- distressing and upsetting as a parent. Because of that, I think there's, there'll be a tendency to just want to react in a very natural way. But as we do as parents, it's going to be very difficult not to re- react in that moment. But my advice would be if you can really try and spend the time reading around self-injury to get as much information as possible. And I think, or I'm hoping that one thing this podcast demonstrates along with the others is just the complexity of the behaviour. It it is very difficult to, or can be difficult for parents to understand, and particularly if parents don't have any knowledge of it at all from the outset. So I imagine that it's quite overwhelming to try and even sift through information online. So if that's the case if you've got somebody who can support you in doing that whether it's a good friend or a family member who's happy to help you find those bits of information that you really need to understand i think first and foremost why your child might be self-injuring as we've talked about well quite generally today really these functions we keep talking about that are reasons for self-harm and these academic academic jargon broad categories of intrapersonal and interpersonal which probably make no sense to I think a lot of people, but those are just broad categories. At the end of the day, there are very many, very specific reasons that young people and adults self-injure. And often it's not one reason as well. It can be multiple reasons that can drive and maintain that behaviour. So I think trying to understand that and and having a good friend and a, a cup of coffee or tea along the way would be a good place to start. The other thing I would say as well is, and the challenges that I find as a parent is, Working in the field of psychology it's quite difficult when something happens with your child and you do know about it. I almost want to move out of mummy mode and try and probably speak, educate my child or speak to him in a way that's probably not what they need at the time. So even if you have managed to successfully, I think, get get to grips with some of the information online, whether your child's receptive to hearing that understanding is is a different thing. And even if you've got a really good close relationship with your child, sometimes they just need you to be mum or dad. And you might have that understanding and you can use that in how you respond compassionately and without judgment. But yeah, maybe not talking, just talking at them too much. I'm learning that sometimes I just need to stop speaking. My, my daughter just wants me, her daughters just want me to stop. So I'll just stop stop and listen and keep it all inside.
0: <laughs> if I had a quarter or a nickel, whatever the saying is, for every time I heard a teenager mm-hmm. tell me that they wish their parents listened. Yeah, I, I try
1: my best. Yeah, it's hard at times, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs>
0: I mean, kids know their parents are not going to be happy about this behavior, and I think parents may sometimes forget mm. that. It's like your kid already knows that you're not going to be happy that they're hurting themselves. Yeah. Uh, lecturing them about why they shouldn't be hurting themselves is probably not going to be helpful.
1: No, I know, and I think some of those automatic questions and assumptions that might come to mind, such as you know why why are you doing this to yourself? You know, what were you thinking? It's holding back on those, isn't it? And just sort of being there to listen and it's a difficult process and parenting full stop is difficult isn't it let's be honest (laughs) yeah
0: Yeah. parenting is really hard I think trying to
1: support um, a young person through self-injury is quite difficult so having that support yourself as a parent say a good friend or family member I think is really Mm -hmm. key
0: yeah and I definitely advise against always asking why you did this or why you did that a better phrase I I like to use is, is help me understand help me understand what this cutting or this self-injury is helping you if it is at all
1: Mm, yeah i think that feels much less threatening doesn't it and there's an assumption as well when you ask why that the person can tell Mm -hmm. you why and i think it's often met with resistance isn't it when you ask children why (laughs) but perhaps framing it in that way certainly might um yeah yeah Yeah, puts them
0: on the defense the why Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to other professionals, whether researchers or clinicians?
1: I mentioned one of the points earlier with regards to respectful curiosity, and this is a term that's been coined by um, or used by a few people um, in recent years. And this is the, you know, the idea that you should remain curious and open-minded about self-injury, try to put aside any assumptions. So, if there is an automatic assumption, something that pops to mind, such as the person might have self-injured their face um, to shock people or um, to seek support well that's not necessarily true there can be many different reasons so it's really trying to inquire with the person and be on that journey with them in a a really collaborative way to try and understand or both understand perhaps you know what the self-injury means for the person and that might include location as part of that and again i think i mentioned this earlier which is not necessarily assuming that People can really always articulate everything about their self-injury. In some cases, yes. And some people, you know, may may do an amazing job at that, but some people may also struggle. So again, it's trying to understand, I think, location, trying to understand the function of self-injury. So it really has to be that collaborative venture where you're you're on the same page and working with the person to try and answer those questions if they are struggling. Um, If they're not, if you know people can articulate that, then then great. Then you can really try and understand as a professional yourself, and um, what the self injury means to them on a on a personal level.
0: Based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self injury?
1: Yeah, I, with, with, I think in relation to functions, location, everything we've talked about. Um, I mean, these are not mutually exclusive categories as well. At the end of the day, are they? You know, lived experience and professionals, and you know, some of the things I've said. Well, from professionals category apply apply here as well so really trying to understand the reasons for self-injury I think is really important and I think understanding that those reasons can fluctuate over time as we've said people can switch between different functions so if that does happen so if you're finding that your self-injury suddenly changes in some way and whether that's location whether that's frequency whether it's in some other way what does that mean And, and does that correspond to a change in the reason for self-injury? Has something changed? Was it that the self-injury isn't serving the same function anymore? Is is the sense of relief not there in that location or with that method or with with that kind of level of severity? So is that the reason the self-injury has changed or is it something different? So I think really trying to look at the psychological reasons along with any patterns and changes in behaviour I think could be quite useful and And opening up that conversation with a professional or a a friend, a family member to try and understand as well if that's possible, if you can talk to other people about it.
0: Try to understand oneself rather than judge oneself. Yes, yes, definitely. Well, thank you, Dr. Gardner, for taking your time and sharing with us. I think this is really interesting and really valuable. Like you said, it's not something that's really addressed as much or researched as much in the field of self-injury but it sounds like there are some important points and important future directions so thank you for joining us on the podcast today
1: thank you very much it's been my absolute pleasure to be here
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention by texting HOME to 741-741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Doc Westers. For all things self-injury, follow I Triple S on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.